So we started this new series uh, last week, this question and answer series. This series uh, is based on some questions that I asked you guys to write over the last few months on these cards. And so we're just going through and answering them. And the questions keep rolling in. So this series might last for the next three years. We'll see. But, but they're great questions, really good questions. So we're going to get rolling on those. I do want to say this. I'm probably going to say this every week. Just kind of some ground rules for this. My goal is to take your question and try to give a biblical perspective on your question. There might not be a clear biblical answer for what your question is. And so I'm going to try to give the best kind of biblical foundation for an answer to that question, but I'm not going to cover all of the theological uh, views on every question. I'm going to try to give you my perspective on what the Bible has to say on that particular thing. So I might, you know, some of you guys have certain theological perspectives on some of these questions. Uh, You might disagree with me. That's okay. But we'll have time at the end for you to throw tomatoes at me and to tell me how wrong I am. No, for us to discuss it a little bit. So I want to leave, make sure we leave room for that. And we're going to cover two questions today. I only got to one last week, but we got two today. So let me pray for us. Lord, just thank you for this series. Thank you for this summer that we get to kind of take a break from things as usual and do something a little bit different. I do just pray that uh, you would help us to see your mind, your thinking through your truth on these questions, that they would not just be kind of academic answers to academic questions, but they would actually be uh, real life, practical things that we can use in our life, handles that we can use to navigate life and to navigate the way we think about you and the way we think about our response to you and how to live in this world. So I pray that you just help uh, me speak clearly on these things today and that you just do what you want to do among us. pray this all in your name. Amen. I do want to say this before I get to the first question. We... uh, had a meeting yesterday that I'm really excited about. I've been excited about for a while. We are starting small group ministry in the fall, and so we had a meeting on that yesterday. I've actually had a lot of meetings, but we had a larger meeting yesterday. Just really excited for what that's going to mean for us as a church to have uh, small groups going on. If you've ever been involved in a small group for any period of time, you know the benefits of those. So, uh, I say that to say, uh, keep that in mind, it's on the horizon, it's coming this fall, but you actually might be approached uh, even today about maybe joining a group, so just be prepared for that. And your answer, if you're approached, is yes, yes, yes is the right answer. Yes, I will join your group. All right, let's get to the questions. All right, first question we have today is, as Christians, we are to contend for the faith. What is the application for this today? So I think the person who wrote this question, it's, it's coming from one of two places. It's either coming from here. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody instead of a bum, which is what I am. Okay, it might be that. I don't think so. But it also could be out of Jude 3, right? Which I think is where it actually comes from. So Jude 3 says this. Beloved. While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing to you, content, write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Now, to apply scripture, we've got to understand what the original author meant to his original 
readers, right, or hearers. So this is the book of Jude. It was written by Jude, who was the half-brother of Jesus, the brother of the writer of James. And he's writing this letter to a group of Christians who are facing some challenges. And these challenges actually kind of take over Jude's letter. His original intention was to write about their common salvation, like be able to relate to them about this, this common faith that they had in Jesus. And at least I picture Jude intending to write something much more positive and encouraging and, and exciting. You know, when you get together, I don't know if you've had this experience, but uh, we've been on a number of mission trips over the years. And, and one of the things, probably the, well, the second greatest thing, the, the greatest thing is seeing youth serving in that context and seeing how God used them, uses them, right? But the, the second greatest thing to me is getting to meet people halfway across the world that have, share a common faith, right? They love Jesus. I love Jesus. We have the most important things in our lives in common, and I've never even met these people before. And you just have that connection, right? I think that was what Jude was intending to write about, this common connection that they had. But instead, he writes to them about contending, now, contending means to compete vigorously to win. It, it, it a lot of times in, in his time was, was applied to, uh, to races or different sport, which includes us today. That, I mean, that's true for us today. It's a word that assumes an opponent and that, and that you want to win, you want to beat the opponent, right? You want to win over the opponent. That's the idea of this word. So, the question here becomes, what's the battleground? What's the sport? What, what's, being, what, what's, what's, what's it being played at here? What's he getting at? Why is he using the word contend? Here, the problem was that there were many in the first century who were proclaiming a false gospel. In fact, there were many different groups proclaiming different false gospels, which is pretty surprising. I mean, I guess it shouldn't be surprising, but this is literally like 30 or 40 years after Jesus' death. And you already have people who are trying to manipulate the faith. I mean, within a few decades. It's, it's crazy to me. It makes sense because we as humans do that. And, you know, centuries later, we have people doing that too. But it was very, very quickly that these people came in to try to manipulate the faith. And, and it wasn't just in their time. It's really been in every century since their time. There have been kind of these imposters to the faith. These, these ones who, are, who come in claiming that they have the real truth right? That, that, that what's come before is, is wrong, and that I've got to, like, fix it. I've got to make sure that, that you know the real thing, right? And, and over the centuries, uh, it, it, you know, I'm not a big historian, but I, I actually taught church, church history for a while, and there's something about church history that is, is worth looking at, which is looking at kind of these, the way this works over the centuries, that there continues to be every century at least a few different groups that we know of that come in and, tr and are kind of these imposters to the faith and try to manipulate the, the faith once handed down to the saints. And they do it in many, many different ways. And the church usually has responded to that historically with different councils and, and where, where the, the leaders of the church would all get together and go, hey, we've got to deal with this. We've got to be clear with everyone about what the truth is because this, this heresy is, is seeping into the church and, and people are believing it because it sounds pretty good. And then you go to the next century, and it's a different heresy that sounds pretty good that people are buying, and they have to come together and make a decision about that and make things clear. And it happens over and over and over and over again. But it was happening in Jude's time. And Jude is saying, hey, we've got to focus on the faith 
that was handed down, that was delivered to us, entrusted to us. It started with Jesus. He entrusted it to the apostles, and the apostles entrusted it to the saints. Now, let's be clear on this. We've talked about this word before. We're not talking about the Catholic saints, that kind of idea of like some sort of elevated Christian person. Saints are believers. In, in the New Testament, that's what, how the word is always used. It's never used as some sort of special category of Christian. It is, if you're a Christian, you're a saint. So it was handed from Jesus to the apostles to the saints, and then it was handed down from generation to generation to generation to generation to generation to generation. generation. came all the way down to us, right? God has preserved it for us today from generation to generation. He describes the saints that he's talking about here, and this this becomes important to this idea of imposters. He describes it in in verse 1. By the way, Jude is one book, so there's no chapter division. It's just one chapter. It's just, these are all verses. So Jude, verse 1, says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. He's speaking to people who are called, beloved, and kept the bottom line is, we talked about this last week, actually some of that same wording, if you remember, we were talking about last week, these are real deal believers, right? Anyone can say, I'm a Christian, right? Anybody can throw the tag on and go, I'm a Christian, right? We could say whatever I want. I could say, I'm, I'm, I'm a potato. Does it make me a potato? <laughs> no. Even, what if I really, really, really believe that I'm a potato? Does it make me a potato? No, it doesn't make me a potato, right? Any, I could say anything I want. The question is, what's legitimate? What's real? What's authentic? And he says, I'm talking to the authentic people, the legitimate believers who are called by God, loved by him, and kept by him. And so that call that Jude had in the first century has been the call of authentic believers ever since. Every century, it's been the same call to to this authentic faith. This faith that needs to be applied to new generations, it really does, right? Because di- different generations have different contexts that they're coming from and, 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 and different cultural impulses that are, that are involved in the culture. And so the, the truth has to be delivered in different ways. But the truth cannot change. And the difference here is that sometimes these cultural impulses that exist in our culture, they begin to there are some who come in and, and manipulate the truth to meet the culture instead of holding to the truth and speaking into the culture, right? And there's a huge difference between those two, two things, huge. One is true and the other is what? False, right? Because it's been manipulated. It's been changed. It's been transformed. It is now another gospel. It is not the gospel once handed down to the to the saints. So going back historically, who is Jude talking about? Who are, who are the people that he's dealing with? Look at verse 4. It says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. There were people in his time, they were called the Gnostics, and he's, he's describing them here. He says, long before they were marked out for condemnation. These are not true believers who have hope in heaven. 
These are those who are, are apart from Christ, who are marked out for condemnation. Well, let, let's just start there, okay? I think we got to start from an understanding, and I think we all realize this, and they needed to realize this, that there were those inside the church. You hear what he said? They crept in, inside the church, and they're marked for condemnation. These are people who are, like, from a church perspective, I'm not, not us, but from the church, they're, they're a part of us, right? The church at large. But they were marked out for condemnation. They're not believers. And they are ungodly, which sounds really bad. It is, it is kind of bad, but it, it simply means living, thinking, acting contrary to God's character. So God is one thing, right? He, he has a certain character in his person. There's something that he's about, right? And these people are not about the things that God is about. They're contrary to God's ways and his character. They're living that way. They're thinking that way. They're encouraging others that way. And these guys he's talking about, they, make, they were making grace into licentiousness. And licentiousness means a lack of restraint, just, just do kind of whatever you want to. Or do more than, you know, people say that there's boundaries, right? We want to go beyond the boundaries. We have freedom. We have grace. Those boundaries don't apply to us. And this is, this is first century. Now, I don't know if you're thinking right now, oh, yeah, I know that that's in our century too, right? We'll talk about that. But this was in the first century. What they were trying to say is, and there's multiple ways that the Gnostics, there were a different group of Gnostics at the time, but one of those groups was saying, your mind and your body are separate things, are two completely independent things. So what you need to do is serve the enlightenment, which is a different, you know, whole different thing, with your mind, and with your body, you can do whatever you want to do with your body, because your body and your mind are two separate things. And it's all going to be covered by what? Grace. God's grace. And he says, they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind, these guys have the label on. It says Christian. They're not going, hey, Jesus stinks, <laughs> right? But he's saying they're denying with their lives that he's the boss, that he's master, that he's Lord. There's really only two ways to live life. Uh, you guys have probably heard me say this before. You're either living life where he is boss of your life or you are boss of your life. There's only two directions, right? These, and there are Christians, those who put on the label and go, you know what? I'm boss of my life. I kind of like Jesus. He's cool. He's great. I, you know, I want to kind of include him in what I'm doing. I like the Christian community. I like being around. But I'm in charge. I'm master of my destiny. And then there's those who go, you know what? Whatever you want, Jesus. I go where you go. I step where you step. What do you want from me? I'm yours, your boss, your master, your Lord. These guys were denying Jesus by their thinking and actions. Titus was, uh, also talked about this same group, and he says this about him. He says, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for, for any good deed. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for every good deed. See, it's not a denial, a, an open denial with their mouths. That's not what was going on here. Or else 
the Christian community would go, they're not of us, right? They're denying Jesus. They're not a part of us. But it was with their lives that they were denying Jesus. Their deeds, they were denying Jesus. The Gnostics uh, believed in, in a hidden truth, that there was the truth about this wor- world, it was not just given to us, it was not just revealed to us by God, but that it was, it's, um, it's a secret truth. It's a truth hidden behind a veil, behind a wall, and only the initiated can see beyond the veil, can really know the truth. And a lot of times they would show contempt for those who claimed there was truth, because they'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. I know your church leadership says they know what, they, what, what they're talking about, but they're not initiated like I am. I know the deeper truth of life, and let me tell you what it is. They claim to have received it from angelic beings whom they also worshiped. God's given me the, the direct line to himself, and let me tell you what it is. And it was all about this licentious behavior. It was loosening of restrictions. They pursued every sensual pleasure because they believed it was the right thing to do. This secret knowledge tells me that I, it's the right thing to do. Jude 16, we won't look at it here, but he, he calls them grumblers, fault finders, giving into their own lusts, flattering people for their own purposes. It sounds good. Their arguments sound really, really good. If they didn't, no one would follow them. Jude wouldn't even be writing because he'd be like, no one's listening to that stuff. But Jude's really concerned because it sounded good. Hey, you got Jesus and this deeper truth. And even many Gnostics would say, well, some believed he was deity, and would say, yeah, he is deity, he is God, come to earth. But he came to earth to reveal the secret knowledge to, to secret individuals. Or they said, Jesus is just a man like anybody else, right? But he was just one who had tapped into the secret knowledge. And you can too. You can become like Jesus. Be just like him, even better than him. You could get deeper into this knowledge. Now, for me, and maybe it's because I'm very sensitive to this movement in the church today, I read Jude, and it seriously reads prophetically to me. I read it, I'm like, oh, I know who he's talking about, but he lived in the first century. We live in the 21st century. He's talking about a different group of people. But I'm telling you, this group of people exists in our world. It has always existed in different centuries, but it definitely exists in our world. And I've talked about this openly before. I feel very open to talk about it now because there's a name for this thing now. Before, it was one of those things that was really hard to kind of nail down, but now you can nail it down. It is progressive Christianity. It is a Christianity that I'm telling you what they would say, okay? I'm not, I'm not misrepresenting what they would say. They would say that the, the faith once handed down over the centuries is inaccurate. It's manipulated. It's not to be trusted. We, gotta be, we have to be skeptical of it. Your parents' faith, got to be skeptical of that, 100%. And actually, what they encourage is deconstructing your faith. 
tear down all of what you, your, all, all the foundations of what you've been built on over the years. This is really appealing, by the way, to, to people who have grown up in the church, maybe seen some hurtful things in the church and are like, yeah, man, I was really hurt by this person or this group or, you know, or they want to live apart from the church and they, they feel like, oh man, the church holds to these standards. They're so rigid. Where's God's grace? Where's God's love? It's there, but not in the way that they want it. They want to live apart from it. And so the encouragement is to deconstruct your faith for a truer faith. I'm, I, I'm not misrepresenting them. This is what they say. The true faith. And they truly do hold contempt for those who hold to biblical orthodoxy. You find it in their writings. When they speak a lot, it's a little bit kind of snarky, I guess is the word. You know, like, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those kind of straight-laced people, right? They, they are, many of them are choosing to live licentious lifestyles. And if they don't, they endorse licentious lifestyles. The, the, the breaking of boundaries. Like these, these Christian mores that we've kind of lived with, you need to push beyond that. That's not right. That's not good. You need to deconstruct those boundaries in the name of love and grace. So they, many, endorse sex outside of marriage. In fact, I've heard some who endorse extramarital affairs to help your marriage, right? Sometimes you need that. They fully, wholeheartedly, many of them, most of them, embrace divorce. There's a, there's a, there's a time and a place for it, and when you need to, you just need to. Definitely are affirming of homosexual behavior. Almost every progressive church, every progressive Christian that's, that is across the board are affirming of it. Not, hey, we need to love our brothers and sisters who are struggling with this, but let's affirm the lifestyle. In fact, let's encourage committed homosexual relationships. And, he, and if they want to get married, let's have them get married here, right? And let's in, uh, endorse even... Uh, pastors who embrace this lifestyle and, oh, you need to leave your wife because you're truly gay, you know, that's who you are, your identity is you're a gay person, you need to leave your wife, right? You made a mistake and now you need to be joined with this other man. These are, I, I, I'm, I'm not misrepresenting them. I'm not. Anybody who knows this, uh, this realm of Christianity, th these are real things. Many, many of them excuse abortion and we'll go, you know what, the Bible actually endorses abortion. And they pull random verses out of context. This is a real movement in the church today. And part of the reason why I've gotten more and more comfortable with speaking very clearly about it is I am convinced, I'm not a prophet, but I am convinced that this will be the dominant form of Christianity in the next couple decades. And so the question for us is going to be, are we going to hold to biblical orthodoxy? Or are we going to be drawn in to these fine-sounding arguments? They are fine-sounding. They really are. They talk about love and acceptance over and over and over again. They talk about personal stories of heartbreak from homosexual you know, couples who in their background have only hurt and pain from their families, from their communities. They go, how can we treat people this way? We need to love them by doing what? Affirming them. It's not love. It's not God's love. But it sounds really good. 
So the question becomes, how do we respond? How do we contend? Is this boxing? Or are we trying to knock our opponent out? Is this, uh, is this survivor? Are we trying to like, make strategic alliances with people so that at the end we rise to the top? Is this, is this football where like, our team is trying to destroy your team? Contend, I don't know about you, but that word sounds contentious, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Is this a call to battle? Is this a call to be contentious with those who are outside of the faith, those who are trying to manipulate the faith? Contend for the faith by beating them up. Going and having a a thought smackdown with them. Now, I would highly endorse good thinking on on this, well thought out things, and there's excellent things to to read and understand that deal with the, the biblical facts about what this other forum, this, uh, this other gospel is preaching. I'm f- all for that. I would encourage you to know those things. Don't feel like you have to know those things, but I would encourage you to, to seek those things out if you want to. There's very, very good material out there on this. But that is not how we contend. That's not what his call to contend, how to contend is. He gives us some very practical ways to contend right here. He says, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. He says we should not be surprised by this. We should actually be expecting this. The apostles way back when told us, Jesus told us, this was coming. We should expect that in the last days, which by the way is the last era of time. We live in the last era of time. It's been the last 2,000 years we're in this era, right? We're in this era. And during that era of time, there will be mockers. There will be those who manipulate truth for their own ungodly lusts. Their own, again, lusts that don't align with God's character. And they want to pursue those things. So how do you pursue those things? Think about it. If you, are, if you put on the label Christian and go, I'm a Christian, you like your Christian community. You don't want to leave your Christian community, but you want to pursue things that are outside of, God, of God's plan for you. What's the best way to do that? Change the community. If I could change the community, then I could stay in the community and do whatever I want, Right? We should expect this. But you, look at 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. The first thing is this, remain faithful to the truth, once handed down to the saints, handed down to us, entrust yourself to that truth. Keep building yourself up in that truth. That's how we contend. Praying in the Holy Spirit. Pray for your faithfulness to the truth and not to be manipulated by these well-sounding arguments. Pray for our, as a church, commitment to the truth. For the church at large, their commitment to the truth. And pray for these, those who have been caught up in this that they would repent and embrace the truth. There's some great stories. In fact, there's a book out there called Another Gospel. It's a great story of, of 
a, a woman who was caught up in this because it just sounded really good, and she didn't have kind of the, the weapons to fight against this. She's like, I, it doesn't sound right, but I guess I got to kind of go the, there. It sounds like that's the way we should go. And she was brought back from that. Oh, man, so good. Be praying for that. And what praying does, what praying always does, is it leaves the primary battle in God's hands, not in our hands, right? We want to make fists and go out punching. I know I do. But we really need to open up our hands and just hand it over. And go, God, you need to take care of this. Because it's beyond me. i got to share this real quick. <laughs> I, um, it's funny that this question came up because in the last few weeks, there have just been a number of things. God does this sometimes. He kind of shows me things kind of all in a row to do whatever he wants to do with me. I don't know what he's doing. But, um, but really in the past few weeks, I've, there's been a lot of this kind of stuff coming up from this progressive perspective. I told Melissa the other day, I'm like, man, I just don't know if I'm up for this battle because it's just so pervasive and so deceptive, and I just don't know. So pray for me, right? I, I just, I, I'm feeling better about it today, but I was, I was, I was a little disheartened a little over a week ago because it's just, it's, I really believe it's going to be the primary thing in the church, and so we're going to have to stand strong in the midst of a swirling mess in the church. And I'm not capable of it, but he's capable of it, right? Strong, strong in my weakness. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. Stay in God's love. Love for God, love for others. Now, what I love about this, especially with this modern heresy, is keep yourselves in the love of who? God. It's God's love. Who defines the love? God defines the love. This is not love defined by us. If it's love defined by us, you're going to be totally drawn in to that realm because they do a great job of using our definition of love to manipulate things. But we have to define God's kind of love. This is not the everyone feels good kind of love. Is God about that? Not about that. Sometimes this love is very uncomfortable, right? This is not uh, abandoning, abandoning God's standards for the sake of love. This is not redefining God's truth in order to make God more palatable to people. That's not the kind of love that's being, that he's calling for here. It's the reorient my life to the person of God kind of love. How does he love? How does he want me to love? How does he want to love through me? That kind of love. So keep yourselves in God's love. That's how you contend. Waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Keeping our focus on eternity. Because if we keep our focus here, going to get disheartened like I did, right? Keep our focus on eternity. So how do we treat others with this? Because this is going to become more and more a primary thing. Um, you're, I guarantee you, you're going to have people in your social circle that are, that are going this direction. Um, how do we love people with this? He gives us three ways, really practical here. Look at 22. He says, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Some are being drawn into this. Some will be drawn into this. Again, you will know people who will be drawn into this. Our response to them should be not contempt, but mercy and compassion. 
because they're being fooled. They're being being shrouded. They're, They're being duped by a good sounding lie. So show mercy on those who are doubting. They need encouragement, not condemnation from us. The second group of people, so he says, on some have, have mercy, the, the doubting ones have mercy. Verse 23, three, he says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. If we can bring those who, who have been fooled by this lie, maybe even gone down this road, road fully in their life because they wanted to embrace probably some sort of lifestyle, that's usually what it is, Save them. We, bring them back. Bring them to him. Bring them to, to, to the truth. Help them understand the truth. We, have, we can play a role in saving them from the lie. Because this lie, I can tell you um, from people who attest to this, it plays out. It, it, it fades out after a while. It sounds really good, but the longer you're in it, the more you're like, there's nothing true in the world. Because I've deconstructed everything. And they just continue to encourage me to deconstruct. When do, I, when do I ever build my life? When do I, when do I ever reconstruct my faith? It's empty. That we can be a part of saving them from this. And the third is, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by flesh. He says, for some, we need to show mercy but at the same time, we need to have great fear, a great amount of caution in ourselves. We need to be careful. We think we're stronger than what we are. And, 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 and our flesh is vulnerable. All of our, us in our flesh, we are vulnerable. These ideas will sound appealing to our flesh. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful with, with some. Keep showing mercy but also be guarded. Understand that we can be drawn in to some of that same sort of thinking. That's how we contend. All right. Question number two. How can or should we live ordinary lives when we serve an almighty God? How can or should we live ordinary lives when we serve an almighty God? We do serve an almighty God, right? Can we agree? Totally uh, dominant, uh, utter, utterly um, unmatched power. Uh, we have a great and majestic God who is utterly holy, which means he, 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 he did, we don't even have standards that can contain him. He is so different. He stands apart. He stands alone amongst all people everywhere. And all things everywhere. He's, by, he's literally, by definition, extraordinary, right? I would say this, though. We serve an extraordinary God. But I think in many ways, we're actually called to pretty ordinary lives. A couple places I would go to for that. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, make it your ambition. This is, this is kind of, he uses funny words here. Make it your ambition. Be ambitious about this. To lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. 
That is a call to what? Be ordinary, right? Be really super ordinary. Make it the ambition of your life to be kind of ordinary, right? Kind of funny the way he states it. 1 Timothy 2 has a similar idea. It says, uh, first of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all god- godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. I think we're programmed in our minds to think of extraordinary things in our world and extraordinary people in our world as those who accomplish extraordinary things. So when someone climbs Mount Everest, we're like, wow, right? That's extraordinary. People go off and defend our country, put their lives on the line. We're like, that's extraordinary. Someone becomes president, and you're like, man, there's only been, what, 40, are we at 47 now? Presidents? I don't know how many. Like, like man, that's extraordinary. People go into space. You're like, man, how many astronauts are there? That's extraordinary. And this can, I think, filter into the church. And we get, what do you call that when you're, like, trying to work for a political movement. You're an activist, right? We get this activist mentality that the Christians, the best Christians in the world are those who are kind of activist Christians, right? They're stepping out. They're doing things that other people aren't doing. They're committed to full-time service. You know, those missionaries, those pastors, and those guys are like the real deal front lines guys. And we like talking this way. Those are the extraordinary Christians. And only if, if everyone could have such devotion, right? I think we are much more those who are living ordinary lives for an extraordinary God. And, and these ordinary lives, though, do become extraordinary. Don't misunderstand me here. Because when we live ordinary lives in the way that our extraordinary God calls us to, our lives become holy and thus extraordinary, right? But this is not in a, in a call to some sort of vocation. It's not a call to some sort of full-time ministry. It's not a call to some sort of go do some sort of action in your life and suddenly you're going to become someone who lives an extraordinary life for an extraordinary God. It's actually much simpler and maybe even a little more boring than that. Look at Ephesians 4. It says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak the truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one in need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. 
Do you hear anywhere in there some call to being a missionary or being a pastor or, being, or go, going and go, go do something? Go, go street evangelize. You hear any calls on any of that? This is how most of the New Testament, when it calls Christians to things, is written. It's written just like this. It's not a call to something specific in your life. It's a call to live your life in an extraordinary way. Live your ordinary life in an extraordinary way. And you might go, this doesn't seem very extraordinary, but let me ask you this. How many people in your life do you know who, um, who don't lie, who are always truthful, who never shade the truth for their advantage? Ever. Or try to cover up something in their life by, you know, kind of covering for it, by hiding it, putting it away. How many people in your life do you know that, that never let their emotions cause them to sin against someone else? Right? How many people in your life do you know that don't hold a grudge for that thing? Like, I get that we don't have to hold grudges for, for those, the minor things, but this thing? Do you know what that person did to me? Do you know, do you know people who live life without grudges? How about those who never fudge on their tax returns to just get that little bit more rebate? By the way, that's stealing. Um, How many people do you know that only speak words that edify? That only speak words that help others and live their lives that way? How many people you know who don't uh, get upset when someone cuts them off in traffic and, you know, goes, you know? How many people you know who are always kind to the people around them, are always thinking about what I can do to do good to the people around me? How many people you know who who forgive every hurt that's perpetrated against them? I think that's pretty extraordinary. But it's not a call to doing something specific. It's It's a call to live your life in a different way than anybody else. And honestly, as I'm going through that, you might go, yeah, I know some people like that. I do know some people like this. They're sitting here this morning, right? There, there are people here this morning that look like Jesus on a regular basis, right? You guys are extraordinary, and you're living extraordinary lives in your day-to-day, day-to-day boring life. In fact, you had many people in the early church. You got to imagine the church was, you know, blowing up early on, and you had many who were coming to becoming Christians as adults. In fact, the majority were adults who were coming to, to Christ. They were already well settled into their lives. They had their vocations, the things that they were doing. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I can imagine like God saying, just like Jesus went to the disciples, you know, when he was calling the disciples, he's like, give up your life, throw down your nets. You're not a fisher of, a fisher of fish anymore. You're a fisher of men. Come abandon everything and come follow me. Now you're going to do something different with your life. And so you can, you can picture, like, when the, the gospel is being spread at this time, that they go, hey, guys, come to Jesus, and then come join this commune. Come be a missionary, you know, go to a monastery, or, or, or be a missionary like me. You can see Paul going, hey, come be a missionary like me. Everybody needs to go, get out of town. Go be a missionary. Does he ever call people to do that? No. Not once. You could see, you know, guys like Timothy who, who were pretty much like pastors today going, hey, you guys all need to get into full-time ministry. Be a pastor like me. Is there ever a call like that? Not once. 
Instead, it's go live your life, go be a stonemason, go be a merchant, go be a farmer, go raise those kids of yours, but be completely different than you were before. Do those things in a completely different way than you did them before. We're running out of time, so I'm not going to cover it, but 1 Corinthians 7 really covers this idea. He actually, he tells slaves, hey, you know what? If you're a slave, keep being a slave. Just be a godly slave, right? Be a Jesus-like slave. Because really, in reality, you're not a slave, he tells them. You're a free person, right? Jesus freed you. So live as the free person you are, but stay in chains. Now, if you can get out of your chains, go for it. He does, he does give that, like, concession. But he's like, yeah, stay in your chains. But be Jesus. Be a Jesus kind of slave. Right? He's telling people who are married who, this was an extremely difficult situation. Imagine you have two Jewish people who have, who have married one another. They have grown up in the traditions of the Jewish faith. And you have one who's like, Jesus is Messiah. And the other one who's like, Jesus is a heretic. And now they're married. They're stuck together. One of them follows Jesus, and the other one's like, I hate Jesus. It would make so much sense to go, get out of that situation. Run like the wind. You're a believer. They're not a believer. Go. But it says, he's like, no, 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 no. Stay. Now, if that person runs away, like, you can't do anything about that. But stay in that marriage and be a different wife than you've ever been. Be a Jesus kind of wife. Reflect his character. And he goes on and on and on. He has all this stuff. He's like, just stay where you are. Because there were Corinthians who were like, I got to get out. I got, Jesus changed my life. I've got, I've got to change every day of my life now. I, I, it, can't, it can't be the same. I can't be doing the same stuff I was doing yesterday. Yeah, you can. Just do it differently. That's the case that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 7. So how I would answer this question how can and should we live ordinary lives when we serve an almighty God? I would say that's exactly what you're supposed to do. Go live your ordinary life, but live it in an extraordinary way. And know that that is what God calls you to. One thing I've, I've seen, and it's unfortunate, it breaks my heart, is I've seen people who go, you know what? I'm, I'm not all of who God wants me to be because I haven't, I, I'm, I'm still a lawyer. I'm still a nurse. I'm still a school teacher. No, you're exactly who God wants you to be. Just be different. That's what we're called to. And it should destroy any perception that, you know, one day, one day I'm going to do great things for God. Now the day is today. <laughs> Go do great things for God in your life right now. In this time, in this place, in this community. Let me pray for us. Lord, we are those who just want your will. We want to know your truth. We want to live your truth. We want to stand as people who are not conforming to our culture, even though there's major cultural pressures in our world. But we're standing in the faith once handed down to the saints. Help us to live in that, to stand in that. And help us to be kind of ordinary people and not see ourselves as being somehow less because we're doing, we're doing ordinary things. 
but help us see that you want to breathe life into those ordinary things. You want us to be um, transformed as people and, and be doing the same things we've always done, but just in radically different ways and allow you to, to, to live out that radical life through us so that the world will see you. That's what we're here to do. It's just to show our friends, our coworkers, our family, all the people around us, just to show them you. Help us to live into that.